You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you would, please uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 7 through 19. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Good to see you continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who are indeed traveling over the summer season. I know it's a busy time of year, but I'm grateful that you're all here as we worship our good God together. Uh, We do have Redemption Hill kids for ages two to four, so if that serves you, um, you go right through the door, uh, first door on the right, and thank you for those who are serving our kiddos this morning. And then we also have some totes, so if you're going to stay in the service uh, those totes are just at the welcome table in the, in the hallway there. All right, before diving into Hebrews 3, I have several uh, opening th- thoughts that, that are uh, somewhat disconnected, but, but um, it'll make sense of the, how they're related, I guess. First, this morning, you're going to see how Holy Scripture is connected. This is not a, a trivial thought, because many people... Uh, they learn to read the Bible and books of the Bible kind of in isolation to, to the rest of Holy Scripture. So it's like you read the book of Ephesians, but how often do you wonder what you read in Ephesians and how it's connected to the, to the greater storyline of Scripture? This morning, I, I hope to show you how all of Scripture is connected. There's a greater storyline, and, and, and Hebrews does a wonderful job of showing us that this morning. So that's kind of like the first thought I'm going to put in front of you before we 
dig into the text. Second, I think we will live in Hebrews 3, verse 7 through verse, or chapter 4, verse 13 for several weeks. The reason why I want to camp here is because of the topic of rest. Rest. Here's what our confession of faith says about rest. On the seventh day of creation, our God rested from all his labor. Now think about that. I'm going to talk about this probably next week or the week. Did God really need to rest? Did he get tired? Of course not. So we're going to talk about what's going on here. Um, He rested. And so he bids us to receive this Sabbath rest as a gift. For the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Our Lord Jesus uses those words in the Gospels. The Sabbath law was then commanded in the Decalogue, I think Ten Commandments there, for Israel to work six days and rest on the seventh day. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to hate on your weekend. You get two days off out of a seven-day week. But here we see clearly, <laughs> just ruining people's lives. Don't take away my Saturday. But here we see you work six days and you rested on the seventh. The New Testament promises a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. We should therefore strive to enter that rest by hearing his voice, not hardening our hearts, resting from our labors, and putting our faith and trust in Jesus, our true rest, rather than striving in our flesh. That's our Confession of Faith, chapter 24, verse, uh, section 7. Today, next Sunday, and probably the following Sunday, we will look at the book of Hebrews to unpack the meaning and importance of the Sabbath or biblical rest. That language Sabbath gets debated about. What do we really mean? We need to talk about that. Here's my my hunch. Like bad electrical wiring in a home, I need to remove the old wiring to install some new wiring. Maybe not for all of you, but perhaps for some of you. There needs to be some rewiring on the topic of rest. Again, at least that's kind of my hunch. So, I want to preach on biblical rest as it relates to your your relationship with God. Yes, that's important. That's going to be the main topic today. What does that mean before God to rest? And then I'm going to get into biblical rest as it pertains to today, like Sunday. Like, what, what does it mean to rest? Is, is, should we still call Sunday a Sabbath day of rest? Here's a sneak peek of, of some, some rewiring. A person not showing up to church because they're tired is not biblical rest. You can call it whatever you want. Right? Just don't call it biblical rest. A person who is tired on Sunday morning and shows up to church will receive biblical rest. Several of you came in, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm always at the door greeting people. And and like me, you know, it's like, how you doing? I'm tired. (laughs) I feel you. But you're here. (laughs) You're here this morning to worship the living God. And there's rest in that. Now, I'll explain what I mean by all that next week or the week after. So that was the second thought. Really got to dig into this 
this issue of rest. Third, I will not directly address the issue of apostasy, which pops up in our text. Apostasy is when a person walks away from the church or walks away from God. I'll address it, just not yet. Apostasy is a secondary or tertiary topic in this part of Hebrews, but becomes the central topic when we get to Hebrews 6. So if you're like, Pastor Sean, it's, why, why aren't you addressing apostasy? Listen, I'm not dodging the hard topics. <laughs> I'm just dealing with the main topics as it, as it comes to us as we walk through the book of Hebrews. I mean, anyone who's known me for more than five minutes, I don't dodge the hard topics. I lean into them. Got to talk about it. If Holy Scripture mentions it, we're going to talk about it. And so when we get to Hebrews 6, there'll be a, like, basically a massive spotlight on this tricky issue of God is sovereign over all things. And here at Redemptional Church, we say that God keeps us until the end. And then you say yes and amen. But also over here, I have volition. I have free will. And what happens, and many of you have friends who've walked away from God. They've walked away from the church. And how do we make sense of all of this? Uh, We'll get there. We'll get there. For today, we will be challenged and warned by God's word. After weeks of seeing why Jesus is greater than the angels, right? That was fun. Got to talk about angels. And we see how Jesus is more excellent than Moses. After seeing that, this sermon pivots toward an exhortation. What do I mean by this sermon? The book of Hebrews as a sermon now pivots toward this exhortation to God's people. He's giving an exhortation to probably Roman Christians who converted from Judaism who are now being persecuted. He's giving them an exhortation and a warning. And it's an exhortation that we need to hear this morning as well. So that's kind of the lay of the land. Those are some Um, some thoughts. Now I'm going to pray. I need God's help. And then we'll get into today's message. So if you could, just pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, I desperately need your help. And Lord, I want to be faithful to what you've already spoken. If there would ever be an untruth that comes out of my mouth, Lord, I, I just I just repent already and just pray desperately that I'd only speak your truth. Instruct us this morning from your word. We know it is good for us. May these precious friends in front of me hear from you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I'm going to say that a few times. I'm going to say it one more time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. These words are from Psalm 95 and then used by the author of Hebrews. The psalmist and the author of Hebrews make a direct connection between the restlessness that a person may have and a hardened heart. So in light of that, when you kind of think about today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It assumes that the one who has a hard heart 
is restless. There is no rest. To say it positively, there is a direct connection between your pursuit of rest and a heart that is full of faith and obedience to God. Do you want to be at rest? Well, the path toward rest is enduring faith and humble obedience to God. I've been thinking about biblical rest for a while now. I've been thinking about biblical rest because, I'm like many of you, I, 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 life's busy, right? Life's busy. It can, it can be hard to find those moments of rest. Uh, my, my musings and study of biblical rest extend back uh, at least two to three years. Several years ago, I was at the Rob Danielson's house working on the truck. Uh, and he, he was helping me with something. And, and while we were working on, on my truck, I lamented to Rob that I just, I'm not at rest. You know, at that moment, I was just spiritually weary. At that moment, I was just physically tired. And Rob, a speaking friend to friend, said something that I'll never forget. He said pointedly, Sean, if you're not at rest, you might be in sin. I was like, whew. You might be right. Good friends, um, this is more of a side note, good friends give great encouragement you know, to another friend. Great friends tell you the hard truth even when it's inconvenient to hear. And that was something that I needed to hear. Since that moment, I've been trying to understand and pursue biblical rest. I've even made practical changes in my life um, you know, to pursue that end. And here's what I've learned along the way. Many Christians, and I don't mean this in a critical way, it's just more of just an observation. Many Christians have an imbalanced or unbiblical view of rest. Here's what we tend to think when we say we need rest. I'm tired, therefore I need a nap. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a nap. I'm not trying to take away your nap. I know some of you like get home from church, it's like, I'm getting 30 minutes in. Jesus took a nap. You know, Mark 4, verse 38. So, like, so, like, so praise God for the nap. <laughs> like a couple amens. Yeah. Not a very talkative church in here, but I, when I say praise God for the nap, we get an amen. All right. But biblical rest is not taking a nap. Biblical rest might include taking 20 minutes to read the back of your eyelids, but it is not the thing itself. Biblical rest is also not you getting not you getting you some me time. I'm not saying that finding a moment to step away from the chaos of life isn't helpful and healthy. I've certainly benefited from taking a moment to slow down and perhaps do a better job of like guarding my calendar because it gets so packed. But you getting some me time is not biblical rest. Biblical rest is not going on vacation. Uh, here in the near future, uh, the Powers family, my family, 
we're going to take several days off to get away, right? We'll do a little mini vacation. The, the entire family is looking forward to it. But taking a vacation is not biblical rest. It might be good to do. I'm looking forward to creating memories with my wife and, and kids. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, kind of disconnecting from my responsibilities to, to really focus on them. Yes, that's good. But it's not biblical rest. All three of my examples, and, and many others, might be a shadow of biblical rest, right? Might be a shadow, but I don't think they're the means to achieving biblical rest. So allow me just to kind of let the cat out of the bag as the proverb goes before looking at the details of God's word. What is biblical rest? Biblical rest is spiritual and physical. I believe that. Like, you're here this morning physically and hopefully being spiritually fed, so they're connected, but it involves faith and obedience to God. As I said, I'll preach in more detail about how rest in Christ connects with the Lord's Day Sunday, but I want to first lay the foundation of rest. In other words, the critical ingredients of biblical rest are faith and obedience. We've got to remind ourselves over and over and over again. Without these ingredients, without faith and obedience, you will not find rest. So I want to approach Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19, by going through... Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 to warn against the danger of hardening the heart. Like he he pretty much like copies and pastes. Like if we were on our computer, he'd be copy and then paste. That's what he does here. And with this, we have the warning. Now why the warning? The warning is warranted because hard hearts are not at rest with God. That's the bottom line. Psalm 95 addresses this issue. Psalm 95 is like a door that swings both ways. Like think about a a door at a restaurant that waiters and waitresses go in and out. It swings open one way to, to, to the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus. Then it swings open the other way to what we read in the book of Hebrews. That's what Psalm 95 does for us this morning. So when I said at the very beginning, before I prayed, I want you to see how the Bible is connected. This is a great passage which demonstrates that. Looking at today's passage this way, going through Psalm 95 is helpful because we see the perennial problem of people being unable to find rest. That's a perennial problem. A person's inability to not find rest is not new. From, not, from Psalm 95, we see the warning. The book of Hebrews picks up on this warning, and then it also adds an encouragement to the warning, which I want to show you at the end of this message. So if you want an outline, if you're kind of the note-taker type, it's a really basic outline. It looks something like this. We're going to look at Psalm 95 briefly, And then we're going to make that connection with the story of Exodus. Then we're going to jump back up to Hebrews. And hopefully I can show you why this passage is for us today. It's Hebrews for today. If you can permit me for a moment, I want to read all of Psalm 95. It's it's not long. When the author of Hebrews quotes this psalm, we read that it was the Holy Spirit that wrote Psalm 95, which I think is really cool and helps us understand the deity of the Holy Spirit. And we read this. Oh, come, 
Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Like, think church. Like, what, what did we do when we got here? After we all kind of settled in, we sang. We sang songs to the Lord. We gave praise to our maker and sustainer. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. I oftentimes end my email with, for the king, because Jesus is king. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So why do I quote this portion of Psalm 95? Everything I've read up to this point is supposed to be the disposition of God's people. If you follow the path of Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7, you actually will find rest. You'll find rest. What I'm trying to show you is that there's a connection between biblical rest with your devotion and worship to God. This obviously has implications on what we do on Sunday morning. A person full of faith and obedience is devoted to God and, and worships God. But you all know, rest can be elusive. Which is why the author of Hebrews preaches on the topic. A person's lack of devotion and worship of the true living God leads us to the opposite of rest. Which is why the following verses of Psalm 95 exist. So think about everything I just said of Psalm 95. And now we got kind of the contrast. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, Israel had seen the work of God. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The locations of Meribah and Massa are read about in Exodus 17. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, which we read about in the book of Exodus. And Psalm 95 warns us to not have a hard heart toward God, just like Israel. He's he's saying, here's an example of what a hardness of heart looks like. Oh, how many people hear a call from God, but harden their hearts toward God. Oh, how many people see evidence of God in creation, right? Just look around, and yet they reject His grace and mercy and love. So the question I have just that's so practical is, 
Are you hearing from God this morning and yet hardening your heart toward Him? God would say to you, stop. Stop rejecting Him. All you will find is ongoing restlessness. You will tread a path well-worn, full of loneliness. You will find yourself on a path forged by Israel for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. And the end of that path does not lead toward rest. If you were following along with the reading from Hebrews 3, you quickly identified the latter part of Psalm 95, right? The author of this psalm is looking back at history to warn us about the danger of drifting away from God. What better example from history to draw from is there than Israel wandering through the wilderness? So let's talk about that story for a moment. The book of Exodus records the story of God leading his people out of slavery by the Egyptians. We can recall from the book of Exodus, you know, you got the ten plagues, right? You got the ten commandments in the book of Exodus. God promised that he would lead the offspring of Abraham into the, into the promised land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And, and milk and honey, kind of, it signified a land of prosperity. It was a land of rest. But there was a problem. The generations of people, that generation of people that came out of slavery always grumbled. They did not walk in faith. And they did not obey God. That's the problem. Even after God used Moses to bring forth water from a rock, like, we're thirsty, God. They're grumbling, I'm thirsty. And okay, okay, staff hits rock, water comes out, thirst is quenched. Praise God, right? You think that's the moment. They're going to turn around, they're going to start being like, okay, God, we finally see you. Nope. Even when God provided food during their 40 years of wandering, the people lived in defiance toward God. Here's a helpful quote from uh, theologian Tom Schreiner. He says this. The wilderness generation tested God instead of trusting in him. I find it to be a really helpful line. They tested God instead of trusting him. Instead of believing God cared for them, they became convinced that he despised them. I'm just like, okay, God performs 10 plagues, right? And sets them free, and that's not enough. Come on. Their unbelief is astonishing since they experienced God's gracious work for 40 years. The Lord liberated them from Egypt and preserved them from the perils of the desert for 40 years. Seeing the Lord's gracious work and turning against him can only be explained by a rebellious and resistant heart. They did not want the Lord to be their God. You will not find rest if you are at odds with God. There are different reasons why a person or an entire generation might be at odds with God. In Exodus, kind of shooting in the dark here, I think Israel did not know how to handle their freedom. 
All the first generation knew was slavery, and then they were delivered. Yes, there were moments of thanksgiving every time God did something great, but it didn't last long before Israel reverted to its old ways. I could sum up the rebellion and lack of faith of Israel by looking at Exodus 14. Here's a little bit of the story before I read, read from Exodus 14. Moses had just led Israel out of Egypt, and now they were on the run from Pharaoh and his army. We read these words as Israel approaches the Red Sea. So they're at the Red Sea. Just listen to this lack of faith. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And at this point, you're reading that and you're thinking to yourself, oh, they're lifting up their eyes to the Lord? That's what they're doing, right? Wrong. They couldn't get their eyes up past the horizon. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What does he mean by that? Under Egyptian law, a Hebrew could not be buried in Egypt. So every time a Hebrew died, they had to take the person outside of the land. And now an accusation is made against Moses, the great Moses. And he's basically saying, you're taking us out of here because you can bury us over here. That's what's going on. The complaint complaint continues. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So, So much lack of faith. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The attitude that we read about here only persisted. God split the Red Sea. Israel walked through the Red Sea. Oh, to be there were the, you know, you would presume walls of water to your right and left as you crossed. And then as God, as Israel came out, God used the waters to wipe the enemy off the face of the earth. What more did they need to see to believe and obey God? Israel was tested, at least this first generation, and they failed. They failed as their actions tested the patience of God. So rest will always remain elusive for the rebellious and unbelieving heart. This is why I keep saying to you this morning, today if you hear his voice, I plead with you, do not harden your heart. Just as Israel hardened its heart toward God in the wilderness. What was the result of Israel's rebellion? Rest was never achieved because of their unbelief. After quoting Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews explains, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Like that generation all died before they got to the promised land. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to to those who are disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
this thought popped in my mind as I was preparing the sermon. Other than the disciples of Jesus Christ, is there a generation of people who saw more of the work of God than that first generation that was led out of Egypt? I can't think of like another time in history where a generation saw the work of God so massively in so many different ways. All this goes to show that a person's faith in God does not and should not rest on witnessing the miraculous. I've heard this before. Oh, if God would just give me a sign, I would believe. If I could see water come from the rock, right? If I could just see that, just show it to me once, and, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll be devoted to you forever, God. Listen, I believe God is all-powerful. He continues to do the miraculous. I believe that with my whole heart. But belief in God does not rest upon the miraculous. If belief in God were directly connected to the miraculous, the generation of people delivered from slavery would have no problem following God, thus finding rest. Belief in God is focused on, focused on like a laser beam. Belief in God is focused on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Like a laser beam. Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus Christ will a person be at rest. So, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now here's a question I want to ask this morning. What does this warning from Psalm 95 and the book of Hebrews have to do with us? Simply stated, unbelief will cultivate a hardened heart. A hard heart will never find rest. And there are plenty of temptations that lead a person to a hard heart. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've seen a pattern of why people um, have hardened hearts. Or they, all of a sudden, it's like, they're going to church, everything's fine, and then something happens, and all of a sudden the heart becomes hard. Here's just three examples that I've seen throughout my years of pastoral ministry. A person will harden their heart toward God because of personal suffering. I, I do not and will not minimize the suffering a person undergoes. A horrific illness, right? An unexpected tra- tragedy. That conflict with that friend that creates suffering, right? And the list goes on. Not minimizing the suffering in which people go through. But in my experience, when a person suffers, their relationship with God goes one of two ways. Either a person grows in their faith in God through the suffering. Like we did an entire sermon series a couple years ago on suffering and how God uses suffering, and how we can grow in our suffering, grow in our relationship with God. That's, that's one path that a person goes through, or they turn their back on God, just like Israel turned its back on God, as we read about in Exodus. Talk to somebody who's grown in their faith through personal suffering, and you will find a person at rest. That's the first example. The second reason why a person will harden their heart toward God is grief. 
Grief can be another form of suffering, but obviously more specific. The loss of a spouse or child causes so much grief. It creates questions, especially like, why, oh God, why did this happen, oh God? And asking the question why is okay. But when the question is asked, and if the person's foundation, its faith foundation is rocky, the question can create a hardened heart. The question can harden the heart because many times there's no answer to the question why. Again, I've seen so many people grieve, yet not know why, and yet grow in their faith. I got permission to use this as an example, but many of you know Aaron and Jocelyn Reichardt. Dear friends, to many of you, myself included, lost two girls. They've asked why a whole lot of times. And yet I've seen them grow in their faith in God through the grief, through the tears. They've grown in their faith in God. But you also see it go in the other direction. I've certainly seen this too. I have seen grief become a bitter poison for the heart. I do not minimize the need for grieving at all. But rest in Christ can be achieved through the tears that accompany grief. The third pattern that I've seen as to why people harden their hearts toward God is leadership failures in the local church. Now this one's like, it seems like it's out of left field, but actually it's not. Again, I'm just showing you patterns, why people harden their heart. As a leader, this is sobering to say, and I'm sure Pastor Rob would, would say this as well. When a church leader fails, there's a group of people that head for the doors, and they do not come back. I'm not saying they don't come back to that local church. They just leave. They're gone, right? Now, on the one hand, pastors are held to a higher standard by God, um, James 3, 1 rings especially true here. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged at greater strictness. Like, that's a sobering truth for me. On the other hand, all God's people need to put their faith in Jesus Christ and not mere man. I mean, our celebrity pastor culture is nuts right now. It's been nuts for 20, 30 years. And people putting their faith in an individual. The person who's standing behind this pulpit and here, I'm here to say to you, put your faith in Christ. And by the way, I could turn around and say that to myself. Sean Powers, put your faith in Christ. Now, my heart is sad when church leaders are unfaithful. But my appeal to any Christian is put your faith in Christ. You know, there are other reasons why a person may harden their heart toward God. But the next question is, how do we resist the temptations of the devil toward a hard heart? How do we maintain faith in a soft and humble heart? Fortunately, the author of Hebrews gives us an answer. Read with me verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, right? Like you, you hear from this particular pastor who's delivering this sermon, just hopefully like a tenderness, like take care, brothers and sisters. Least there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. 
just not on, just on Sundays, but like every time we're hanging out, let's exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, I know you hear the warning, but I also want you to see the role of the local church here. Members of the local church, like I said, are to exhort one another. Uh, the, the Greek word for exhort has like a range of meanings. I had uh, written my sermon manuscript and, and Ryan had sent me a text. He's like, did you see this part in, in Hebrews 3? I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> going to talk about it. <laughs> and this word, this Greek word is parakaleo. It can mean encouraging someone in the faith. That's a good thing, right? Barnabas was an encourager in the New Testament. We want to encourage one, one another in the faith. It could also mean coming alongside someone who's living in sin. Now, that's not an endorsement for the sin that that person might be, that sin that's being committed, but coming alongside them and be like, and I say this to the kids that I teach, I see you messing around, I'm breaking out the cattle prod, but sometimes we need the cattle prod, and that's a good thing. Brother, I love you, but knock it off. Sean, you're not finding rest, you might be in sin. That was a loving cattle prod that I needed to receive in that moment of my life. Parakaleo. Exhorting, encouraging. So regardless how a person translates parakaleo, one thing is for sure from this text. We need one another because pursuing greater faith and rest in Christ is kind of like a team sport. Many, many years ago, um, Getting old many, many, many years ago. I played a high school basketball. I know just looking at this body, you're just thinking, high school basketball player, Pfft, right. And uh, for two years, uh, we were number one in the state. Biggest class, number one in the state. But I didn't play meaningful minutes. I was like the eighth or ninth guy, you know, off the bench. And the guys ahead of me were terrific. I think all of them except for one went on to play college ball somewhere. But we were a team. And I knew my role on the team was to encourage my teammates when the games were being played and then to challenge them when we were at practice. The church is also a team where a group of people commit to one another to encourage and challenge one another in the Christian faith. We also exist to guard the spiritual rest that we have in Christ. Let's consider Israel one more time. Moses is like the head coach, right? You got Aaron, his brother. He's like maybe the assistant to the assistant head coach. You got Jethro. He's an advisor to the team. And then there are 70 elders on the team to help out the head coach. God had given them the rules of the game, the law. What happened when there are a few people on the team who are not on the same page? They're just kind of rowing in a different direction. There might be chaos, which is the opposite of rest. Take another look at verse 14. It says, for we have come to share in Christ. The author of Hebrews here is speaking in the plural. Together, we hold firm until the end. In Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verse 6, we are encouraged to hold fast to our confidence and hope in Christ. The same verb shows up here in verse 14. We need to hold fast because the fight of faith is a war. 
or that's just another analogy we could use in addition to a team sport. When I read verse 14, I began to think of some of my favorite war movies, and two came to mind. Uh, The Patriot, and I think that came out in 2000, and Gladiator. If you're a movie goer, you might recognize those. In both movies, you have a main character leading men to fight in battle. In Gladiator, the main character, Maximus, tells his soldiers before going into battle, you just see the scene, and he's riding his horse down the line. He says, hold the line. Hold the line. You look at the person to your left, you look at the person to your, to your right, and you ride with that person into battle, and you hold the line. No one gets past you. Everyone stays before you, and you do it together. You live and die with the people in your company. Hold the line. Uh, the situation in The Patriot is different in this particular scene. Mel Gibson plays the main character, Benjamin Martin. In the battle against the British during the Revolutionary, Revolutionary War, the British are winning this particular battle in this scene. And those on the American side, they're losing heart. But Martin, the man of courage, finds the flag bearer. Why does he find the flag bearer? Because the flag is going forward, the soldiers are going forward. If, if the flag's going backwards, the soldiers are going backwards. In this particular scene... The flag's going backwards. And so Benjamin Martin, he grabs the flag and he goes forward straight into battle, into the enemy's teeth, and he yells, hold the line. Hold the line. He re-engages the battle. There's a temptation in the face of trials and testing to think it's impossible to hold fast, to hold the line. But do not lose heart, Christian, because you do not hold fast. You do not hold the line alone. Not only is Christ in you and with you, but the body of Christ locks elbows with you every single day. Therefore, you can rest. You can be at peace, full of faith in God while traversing this world. So, you physically tired this morning? Well, whether you get an afternoon nap in or not, you can be at rest because of your faith in Christ. Do you need a few minutes to step away from the busyness of life and slow down? Well, I do not know if you'll be able to create the necessary space that you can be at rest because of Christ. Are you here this morning and you know not the rest offered by Christ. You are like Israel wandering around in the wilderness. Well, you need to hear these words this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart, but repent and ask God to forgive you of your rebellion and sin and rest in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.